Welcome back to Conversations with Shonda. Hi, Shonda. It's so, Good morning. It's so nice to be back. It I was know. nice talking so, to you like three years ago, it, it seemed like. Doesn't it? It feels like the whole world unfolded again between our conversations, which I'd like to talk about the toll it's taking and, and how do we, we find light and joy during this time. So, of course, I just like talking to you. So this, this is an extra uh, privilege to be able to have this opportunity. And we got a ton of questions that I thought I would just bring back up because you um, generated a lot of interest and a lot of questions, which I think is really um, consistent with where we all are, which I think is in a, in a moment of just a lot of question asking about how we can be better and smarter and more strategic and more committed to equity and justice. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. For sure. So let's just start out talking about like, how are you? I was not able to shower this morning. Okay. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a little rough. And I know parents everywhere are just, I don't know. Yesterday, I spent all day trying to track down a Chromebook because for my seven-year-old, because he needs it. And all the laptops are sold out and all the Chromebooks are gone. And you know, it was just hard. So I, all these parents are now scrambling for technology. I don't know how parents who can't afford the equipment are going to be able to support their kids, those who don't have mm -hmm. Wi-Fi. So, I, yeah. So I was not able to comb my hair for this podcast yeah. <laughs> this morning. I kind of got myself together, and um, I still have one child that's in school, and I'm pretty sure it starts this week. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. I'm just like, you know, he's in high school. He's going to have to help me figure it out because I do feel like, you know, we're sitting in a time of just overload and trying to figure out how to get it all done. And so when I hear folks yeah. talking about this is a low income, these poor parents of color that have no resources, and I'm like, I can't figure this out. And I do have some resources to figure it out with. Yeah, I read a great article uh, in Medium last week it was it was about search capacity i think the author's name is tara hale or Halley. um my apologies to tara for mispronouncing her name she was just talking about how we're just we're just overloaded with everything and then there's this thing called ambiguous loss where we just don't know when this trauma is going to end and so we don't have things to look you know we we don't have things to look forward to we don't have a, like a we don't know when it's going to end so it's it's hard for us to deal with it because it's just ongoing forever. And I think we also become like hypervigilant to all the trauma that is going to come. So it's not just the past and present trauma that we're dealing with. It is now like the future trauma that we are anticipating and constantly on hypervigilance about. So this is, it's hard. And I think all of us are just trying to keep it together. And I don't know, I don't know how, how you've been able to hold things together. Yeah, like barely. Um... It's been, it's been very hard. I think, um, you know, we were chatting a little bit about surge capacity and, you know, I was trying to wrestle down. What does it mean when your capacity is not about the, the tangible things? It's about the sense of trauma, the loss, right? The anticipation of more trauma. Um, you know, it's, it's about the capacity that we need to manage in this new reality. Um, for some of us, we're very isolated. I'm, I'm fortunate to have family around me but you know it just feels you know like we need to have some new tools to apply right now and you know I'm trying to figure out what that looks like 
for myself. And I know there are others that are trying to figure out, you know, how to manage the weight of this moment. We had a, uh, a beloved community organizer, uh, a woman of color over here. She just recently died because of suicide. And she was strongly involved in, in the movements for racial equity. She was a beloved leader. And I think she was only 43 and she just died. And I think she had been dealing with isolation and addiction and mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's gonna be waves of this coming with the, with the winter and things probably going to be getting worse. Yeah. And I, I think our sector needs to deal with this and actually just like really call it out that this is going to be a serious issue for, for all of us. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that, um, about burnout, about increased maybe alcoholism um, and depression. And, you know, I'm, I am seeing signs of that within our sector and within our leaders. Do you have any advice about what we ought to be considering for our staff or for for funders, for our grantees? We, for one thing, I, I think we need to just stop with the pretense that everything is okay. Because I feel like everyone's just trying to kind of power through everything mm -hmm. and just go on with the gala and the events and the work as if everything was back to normal. And I think in some ways, it, this is a coping mechanism. Some people uh, really appreciate having meaningful work to do but that doesn't always work for everyone. There are a lot of people who, who need a break, who need some understanding. Uh, uh, parents who just need some leeway. Mm -hmm. And those who are in isolation, they're also facing loneliness and depression and with seasonal affect disorder uh, coming as well. So I do think that we have to start thinking about mental health um, support for our staff. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe more mental health days, maybe encouragement and, and also ending the stigma of like asking for help. We're also kind of bad at that. Yeah. So I think I've been we, really trying to model that lately of like, you know, check on me, I'll check on you. Um, you know, I'm not okay today. How are you? Like, I'm really trying to be honest and transparent about where I'm at because I think it's important for those of us that seem to keep plugging on to just identify that you know there there's some intentionality around caring for myself and then recognizing that i'm not actually okay um you know the other thing is you know it's there's so much that's heavy and it feels like everywhere i go people are are talking about that or they're posting all this and reposting things that are, are trauma filled do you think that people feel like it's okay to to laugh and find joy and have some levity during times like this it's been really hard. Even I have been feeling this. Nonprofit AF started as a humor blog, and now it is just very serious all the time. And people are asking me, what's going on with you? Why, why are you not funny anymore? And some people are actually worried about, about me, which is very sweet. Mm -hmm. um, it is hard, though, to, to, to lift up joyful moments and levity when there's just so much going on. I think you feel like, you are betraying the moment if you are posting things that are considered not serious. Yeah. So, but I think that, I, I don't know. I think, I think we have to find these moments of joy and levity and light and happiness and hope 
because how how we're going to be able to survive through this and what is the point of enduring everything if we can't find happiness in 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 the moment in in our existence mm -hmm. i'm counting on you to say something funny today <laughs> <laughs> i need you to be funny um <laughs> So look, so we have all these questions that came up. So I'm just going to like knock them out for those that are listening. Um, there's a part one of this conversation um, that might go into more detail on um, some of these questions, but let's just jump in on those. Um, I'm going to go to the first question since we're kind of on this lane and then we'll get to more of work in the field. But, you know, how pissed off should we be right now? I uh, we should be very pissed off, mm -hmm. but maintaining that level of, of being pissed off is is challenging. I, yeah. I would say, and I, I don't know. I, I think to do this work effectively, um, I, I, like James Baldwin said, you know, I, I, you know, to be black is to be constantly angry, and I feel like those of us who are doing systemic injustice uh, and doing systemic injustice work, we also have to be incredibly angry. Yeah. And but that does take a toll on on all of us. Well, I was just going to say who should we be angry at, right? Because a lot of us are sitting inside of institutions and systems that have um um both played a role in progress and maybe perhaps have been complicit with the issues. So, who who should we in fact be pissed at? <laughs> That's a good question. Let's let's be pissed off at everyone. Yeah, let's just do that. <laughs> But I mean, that's unfortunately that has been true. We have been pissed off at everyone, and I think we need to be more strategic in who we're getting pissed off at, right? It's it's people in power. It's those who are who can make the change, but they won't. Billionaires who refuse to pay taxes, and to be honest, foundations who refuse to release more money during a time when our democracy is at stake, and we don't have time. We don't. We just can't afford to keep hoarding. 95% of the funds and donor advice funds and, and endowments, um, you know, so the, so that's another. And then I also think that we need to, to be pissed off at the white moderates in our sector, those who are just constantly, you know, why don't you wait? Why don't you, why don't you start a petition on this? Right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, start another petition for these racist statues. Uh, let's have a community forum with the police. Uh, let, let's like, Yes, and you and I can disagree on, on anything, which is why I appreciate talking uh, to you about, about these issues. But I think for me, I am more irritated by people who are just like, who believe in equity, who believe in justice, but who are just constantly just waiting and expecting this sort of civil dialogue to, to happen when it, we've tried that technique, that we've tried that path, it hasn't been working. And, and part of, I think, the problem is that there's so many uh, people, especially, I think, the, the white progressive that has very little comfort talking about issues of race. Yeah, but right now, I don't really, I, I don't think we should care anymore. I think we, the conversation has moved beyond those folks, right? I, I, I kind of compare it to uh, a class, and you have a classmate who keeps missing classes, and... <laughs> Right. And then they come into the discourse and they're like, uh, what did I miss? And then the entire class has to stop to explain it to them. No, it's their responsibility to get notes from other people before they come into class. 
Because right now I'm getting tired and we, and we perpetuate this both-siding in our sector where we're just like, let's discuss, you know, the existence of racism. Let's do ideological diversity. So let's, let's bring in all these like shitty views that are awful and demeaning and dehumanizing to people. We should not be discussing the, the, the existence of racism and white supremacy. They exist. You know, the discourse has to be moved beyond that now. So right now, I don't really care. Uh, I was talking to a group of funders once who were just like, well, you know, we're waiting to, to do some internal work before we decide to give more money to black and indigenous community. And I was like, you've been doing this work for years now. Right now, I don't get, communities don't give a crap whether you're diverse anymore. Just give more money to black and indigenous and community-led organizations. Just do it. We don't care. You can be 100% white at this point as long as you're giving more money to organizations led by communities of color. So I think for a lot of people, it's just like, we can't wait anymore for you to be comfortable or not comfortable. Um, equity is about resources and power. And whatever you're, so it's not about you being diverse for, for its own sake necessarily. It's like, what are you actually going to do with, with, that, with that diversity? Are you going to shift money and resources to the communities most affected by systemic injustice? Yeah. And what about um, the notion that there's already so much money that are going to help brown and black communities and it has not moved the needle? <laughs> it's not enough. Philanthropy has given $5 billion. Well, that's wonderful this last three months. But this is, this is something that has to be sustained over decades, the way the conservatives have been doing it. Strategies on the conservative side has been decades long, like invest. While we have been arguing about whether we are comfortable talking about racism or whatever, right-wing conservatives have confirmed 200 federal judges into, into power. And that's going to that's gonna shape and reverse progressive progress for, for the next like, several decades. And we don't think on that level because we're just all, all, all the time just thinking about ideological diversity and decentering whiteness and things that I think we've just become intellectualizing just for its own sake at this point. Yeah, the, the stat that you just brought up, the $5 billion, um, to brown and black communities and what was in the last five months? Uh-huh. Did I read the article that says that's equivalent to what has been invested over the last 10 years? <laughs> I would not be surprised that that is okay. the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I read that. So can we, you know, that may not be correct. We got to do our own homework, but I, I feel like I did read that. Um, you know, you talked about both siding, and I think in your latest blog, you talk about nonprofit and philanthropy, both siding, inequity and injustice. And so you've given a couple of, of examples of that, but can you, do you have one more in you to, to give us so that we really understand how we can sometimes sit or undermine our efforts by, by just not taking a position? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if we're going to be honest, like philanthropy, Chronicle Philanthropy just published a, a, a podcast with a known white supremacist who's talking about how we need to limit immigration. He's like well connected to all of these terrible white supremacist views and people. And, and I think Chronicle Philanthropy is like defending this by saying this is ideological diversity by presenting both sides of the argument. No, white supremacists don't need our support. This sort of both siding has been leading to horrible things like, like climate change deniers and, and so on, right? Anti-vaxxers. 
there is so much overwhelming evidence on one side that there is there are no two sides. So to lift up two sides if they're equally valid just just provides them. So this is an example of that. And we have other things that are more subtle, like the salary ranges not being disclosed. You know, when there's so much evidence now that 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 hurts women and people of color, people with disabilities, etc. So we don't need. So we need to stop wasting time trying to get. To this sort of like this sort of intellectual rigor by presenting both sides. There are no two sides. Some sides are just horrible, and she just never see the light of day. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So we did uh, talk at one point about salary disclosures, and I said, um, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> and and since there's overwhelming evidence, I probably should feel like I'm in support of it, but. Um, you know, I'm not in HR, but I've always been like a little bit leery about um, putting that on there. I think I'm much more in favor of just having equitable salary. And when people come in, give them the same amount that you would give, right? Like just make it equitable and have the practice. But, but um, the reason that you support that in the evidence is basically saying that um, without doing that, women and people of color end up not having equitable pay. Is that? Yeah. Well, it's it's. I mean, it's great in an ideal world. Yeah, they would be able to enter into a job and be paid. Um, but the reality is that one, we waste a lot of people's time, and you know, marginalized community members. There's also a time inequity, time poverty as well. So it's harder for them to be able to like spend hours writing a job, this uh, cover letter and a resume and prepare for interviews and take the bus to go down to the interview. They could be spending like so much hours preparing for this job that they don't even know they could afford to take if it would even support their families in the first place, right? Then there's also the negotiation aspect, which is that women and people of color, we tend to be underpaid because when we are aggressive in, in negotiation, we are seen as uppity, whereas a, a white man being uh, assertive in negotiation is seen as a leader. So we don't know what to negotiate. We don't know what to basis. Then we are at a setback, right? If we know the salary, then we can start, okay, well, I am going to aim for this. And if we don't know it, it's, we have no idea. So if we overshot the salary that, that the employer has in mind, we're going to be punished for it. So that's another reason to disclose it. Okay, it's a fair argument. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, for organizations that don't have that, so it's a one, one very easy way for them to begin to move on an internal issue that would uh, hopefully create more parity. Okay, so the next question I have. So the last time we talked, we talked about um, fundraisers and the way in which nonprofits or the social sector uh, leverage the story of people that have been struggling that they've they've provided services to, right? And so one of the questions that came back was, in the context of a fundraising event, what is the best way to share stories of impact without causing harm? This is something our sector really has to explore now, because I, I do feel like we've had some really unethical storytelling, where we don't we don't disclose the impact to our to our the people that we bring on to the stage right and so one thing we could do is one really ensure really be thoughtful about who is sharing the story and what kind of story are they sharing do they have the agency to determine what stories they're sharing and do they know the impact of what happens when they're they're sharing 
because I don't think we tell them that, hey, look, you're going to be sharing hundreds of people, most of whom are going to, because most gala attendees are, are white in our sector. And are you going to be okay with that? Are you going to be okay sharing this very vulnerable story with everyone here and having people uh, perhaps change their perspective of you? So that's, so I think getting people all the information that they need to make the decision. But I'm also trying to move us away from this sort of like empathy as a way to get uh, to our fundraising has been based on empathy, basically, right? Trying to get rich people with power and privilege to feel a sense of empathy for other people in their community. And I really think that our fundraising has to move from empathy to justice. Justice should be what we ground our fundraising efforts on. Because at the end of it, I, I don't think Empathy is great. It's kind of like it's kind of like a, a like a, a formal degree, right? You know, I have a master's in social work, uh, and a lot of people do, and I, I I really appreciate it. But we have a lot of job postings that say you must have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree uh, to to do this work. Even though for a lot of work, why? You know, we know education inequity is a thing that we're trying to address. So why do we require this for people to jump through this hoop? If they're able to completely perform, uh, if, even if they don't have the, 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 the degree. So it's the same with empathy. Empathy is great, but it should not be a gate from which justice flows. It should be justice. It, that should be. So I think an example is like, I don't, as an Asian cisgender male, I don't know what it's like to be a black person or a black trans person. Should my empathy be the thing that prevents me from supporting the liberation for black folks and black trans folks and, and other people with, that I can't really relate to? No, I should support it because it's the right thing to do because it is the just thing to do. And my empathy, if it's helpful, then yes, uh, you know, that's great. But if, even if I can't empathize, I should still be supporting it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the issue of degree. Um, I think that's another uh, place that, that we can look at our job descriptions and what we're expecting. Um, you know, I have often told the story of how I came into my previous uh, organization, Pillsbury United Communities, as a non-degree divorcing mom of three and uh, applied for a role that required a degree. And I remember saying, you know, when they called me back, they're like, are you sure you're applying for this job and not this other um, more junior role? And I said, yeah, I'm absolutely sure where I've applied and I can do the job. Um, if you want someone with a degree, you can you can go find them, but I could actually do this role. And um, I'm from this community. And so, you know, I think that the 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 fact that I needed to provide for kids allowed for me to be bolder in that moment. But um, the organization uh, took a risk on me. So I'm definitely a believer um, in uh, looking at people for their drive, where they're going, how they can have impact, and not letting that be the one thing that sorts it out, especially when it's not a requirement. And funders need to think about asking for that requirement as well in their uh, expectations. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I, I, I don't like it when funders are like, please give me, provide the, the resumes for all your staff or what. I'm like, no, why, why do we need to? Focus on what we're able to do. Yeah. So yeah, that's a simple thing that funders can do is just stop asking for staff qualifications except like how well they are connected to the community that they're serving maybe mm. so you know along this role one i got i got a piece of feedback um in our uh survey and the questions which says that in our last conversation 
Um, I did not kind of respond, me, um, to um, the power and um, the, the actions of the Minneapolis Foundation and some of the, the violations <laughs> that, that we might be having, right? The way that we might play into um, some things that need to change and um, that I have a position of power and authority and that I should be using my role to speak more clearly about ways in which the foundation should be transforming. And, you know, I take that piece of feedback very seriously and I think about that often in that I'm um, both navigating in a system, right, as a woman of color, and um, the way that change looks often isn't obvious. It can be sometimes slow. And I also want to be very, very clear that, you know, in um, my learning, both in my lived experience, my professional experience, and now within formal philanthropy, we are evolving our practices. And so there is a recognition that things need to evolve. So I want to just say that as I appreciate getting that, that piece of feedback. But, you know, do you have, um, you know, you've been in, in leadership roles and certainly you talk to people of color that are leading inside of these institutions all the time. Do you have any context that you can offer in terms of um, what you think that, what waters we are navigating and um, how people should, should um, not, maybe not appreciate that, but understand that? Oh, thanks, Shonda, for this extremely complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, ha I have been thinking about this because I, I do feel like uh, we're in a similar situation, I, I guess, which is to have more, uh, more visibility as people of color. And with it, but I think we have to acknowledge several different things, right? One, there is definitely the power uh, of, of the positions and the visibility. And also, we're still people of color who are, ex who are in a, an, an unjust, racist system. So that doesn't, that's not always negated completely by the positional power that, that we take. So I think there's this sort of duality that we have to sort of, sort of understand and, and navigate through. So I, I was talking last week about um, what, I, what I'm now calling the only B1 syndrome which is that sometimes people of, of color or people from marginalized communities, they, they gain access to power and privilege, and then they become gatekeepers. And I think that's something that, that we should all be aware of, because I, I know for sure in my past, I've, I've done that, right? I probably have either consciously or unconsciously prevented other folks. Uh, I'd like to think it's unconsciously, right? Um, prevent other folks of color from having the same access and resources. And in some ways, it's this, this sort of protection that we've, we've gained evolutionarily to survive through a very racist system is that which we're being protective of our, our power and resources. And so we think we, there will only be one person of color here or one, you know, whatever. Um, and but I, so that's something that we all have to understand is that this is has, we've, been, we've internalized a lot of things. So for me right now, I, I think it's, it's important to just really analyze that and figure out like if you are someone who is able to have more, more leverage and power and privilege, then how do we actually use it to lift up other people? How do we become the gate and not the gatekeeper is what I, I hear another colleague putting it. Mm -hmm. But it's challenging because it's so, 
I don't know, it's, it's so pervasive, everything that we're dealing with, all the, all the injustice, and we ourselves are not immune to being affected by it. Yeah, I think that's valid. And a lot of the practices within our organizations, our institutions have been in place for a long time. Um, and it does require um, deep conversations um, to bring people along. Some things that feel really obvious on the outside are not as easily changed um, once you get in the role. Um, but I want to, uh, just for the sake of, of this question, this pushback, um, really reinforce that, yes, there are things that we are examining, not just me, but us at the Minneapolis Foundation, our board, um, our leadership, our CEO, our team, um, that have made a commitment in centering equity and looking at how do we get more proximate to issues, how do we amplify the voices um, and leadership of others, and we're examining where we're not doing that and pushing um, forward on that. So um, I wanted to just give that a little bit of air. Um, the next question is, um, one of the most difficult problems the organizations I have been involved with have had trouble recruiting people of color to board positions. Do you have any suggestions on how to do a better job of recruiting POC board members? Well, the board system is broken. It is a crappy system. Let's, let's be honest, both in foundations and nonprofits. In nonprofit, I mean, both the, the commonalities, we have a lot of well-meaning people who are volunteers, so they see 1% of what is going on, um, and they get to make vast strategic directions and have power that they probably shouldn't be having. So, <laughs> and because of all these dynamics, we tend to gravitate towards people who have resources and you know, who have access to wealth and so on. And so this, this creates, so the, the entire structure is something we have to re-examine. Otherwise, we're just gonna invite people into a broken system and then wonder why they're not happy, right? So I don't, you know, I, 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 I've been on boards now where it's just a miserable experience where you go on there and people are like, well, you know, you're mainly here because you have money or can you contribute to this and this? And it doesn't feel um, like community oriented. So I feel that that's probably two thirds of boards in our sector are completely useless or destructive to the work. Hmm. One third are actually helpful. Uh, and, and how do you distinguish the ones that are helpful? What are the, what are the, um, what, the <laughs> what qualifies that? <laughs> well, I think there are probably some commonalities. They tend to have a closer working relationship with the staff. Uh, they are more representative of the community. They're not as rigid. We have a bunch of rigid uh, sort of practices that we've, we've passed down that are traditions that are not required by law. Like some, so many of us still use Robert's rules. Why? Why do we use these rules? Who is Robert? Who right? is Robert? <laughs> so why, why do we use that? It's not legally mandated. So we have uh, like all of these. So I think the, the more flexible boards, the ones who don't treat where the boards don't think that they are the boss of the staff or, or whatever, um, are the ones that are, more, that are more effective, the ones that are willing to take risk and learn. And one where the boards feel that their, their role is to support the staff and its work because the staff are the ones who have the most knowledge and, and the connections to the communities. And this is something I would push for foundations also, because I feel like people don't necessarily understand that when we talk about power, is that a lot of it resides in the trustees. The trustees, 
So we have amazing program officers, uh, many of, of color, who, who are proposing all sorts of radical changes aligned with equity. And then they get squashed by the mostly white board trustees because I think 97% of foundation trustees are white. And they have all the power. Why is that? Because you have money. Why does money equate to power? So we're going to talk about changes. Then the board trustees of foundations need to be able to start shifting power and autonomy to foundation program officers so that you're not just recommending funding, but you actually have the power to shape funding and allocate funding in a way that you see fit because you're the ones who are more likely to know the community and to know how to best support the, the folks doing the work. Yeah. You know, I have um, two questions. One I'm going to um, look for here, but the other, I think this bridges our last uh, conversation or the last question in this one. And it says, what can we do as a community seeking resources to critique and force change at foundations that are doing real harm to our communities through their gatekeeping of our leadership, curtailing our progress and continuing to abuse their own black staff? Whew. What do you... <laughs> What do you think, Sean? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, you know, one way that I, I would say is that, you know, I'm sitting in a role, there are other folks of color that are moving into roles and positions within foundations. You know, I would really invite folks to, to reach out and talk with, with um, those of us that are in these roles and to find out, um, perhaps what might feel supportive because we sit in a place of like knowing it needs to change and also being an agent and a representative of a foundation. And so, you know, it, I think that when it comes to whose voice is most valuable, right. And how you move things forward um, in terms of equity, you know, when you have folks that are on your team and on your staff that represent the community or have the experience of the issue, and if you're not waiting sort of that feedback, if they're unable to bring full voice to the table on that issue, um, and they're, they're expressing that in some way, right? You're getting that feedback. And if you're not listening to the feedback, I think that's problematic. You know, we're seeing uh, folks in community that are pushing up and saying, you know, what you did yesterday to get us here, we're not accepting moving forward because we're on this, this path towards justice. And I think that continued push, whether or not it's, you know, at our foundation or other foundations or around policing or education or economic or climate or everything, um, I think that those lessons are being shared and pushing institutions to think about where they need to be improving. And if you're in an institution that's not thinking that, that's a real problem. But I don't know what to necessarily say, but I, I want to just reinforce what, I, what I'm over and where my realm of influence sits is that, you know, when we get uh, feedback, we do take it seriously, we examine it, and we are looking uh, more intentionally at how do we build these feedback loops in because we'll make changes and we haven't got quite yet to the point of being able to communicate back out to the public how their feedback has actually evolved our practice, but we're working on it. Thanks, Shonda. I appreciate that. We do need to acknowledge, again, the power differential. Right? It is scary to give feedback to foundations. And so I think in order for this to actually work, foundations have to, to seek out the feedback and to do it repeatedly because you may ask three or four times to a, to a nonprofit leader who depends on, on you for funding. And you can say, you can be very nice and say, hey, 
you know, we really value feedback. Please give us feedback. But the first three or four times, they're not going to believe you. <laughs> like this is just because we have all been trained to be terrified of foundations. Let's, let's be honest. And it's because we have set up this very adversarial sort of relationship between foundations and nonprofits where one holds the power and resources and, and the other ones are, are forced to adhere to strategies and the whims of foundations. So until those are addressed, and we can talk about that, then this power dynamic is always going to be there. And to overcome that will take multiple instances of foundation going out and saying, no, I really, your funding is not going to be jeopardized. You give me as much harsh feedback as you want. And again, it's going to take several different iterations of asking before nonprofits are able to feel the comfort of being able to give out uh, feedback honestly. So, but I, I do encourage everyone to do that though, because you know, I, I do think that in many ways, nonprofits underestimate foundations ability to take hard feedback. Like, Mm -hmm. and we need to just to stop that. And, you know, so we, we need to go in there as well. We need to be equal partners and, to be equal partners, we have to do our work, which is including uh, honestly feeling like we have to jeopardize our funding or our jobs or whatever to deliver honest, critical feedback. Yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I actually am sitting here reflecting on um, an incident that just happened out of um, our work that we were doing around police and after George Floyd, and we had community members that were upset with us and took to the mic and. Um, I think it was uh, valuable in the sense of, of understanding what that particular group of folks were feeling and we listened. But I have to say, just as um, me, right? Like, you know, there's times where I'm like, why didn't you just come talk to me, right? Like, I know that I can't take it all in, but, you know, I think sometimes we, what, what I recognize in the role that I'm playing is that I'm a representative of the institution. And sometimes people don't see me necessarily as a member of the community anymore that is experiencing the same things that they are, right? That I'm a, I'm a representative of this institution. And um, I think that, you know, I have, I have always had an appreciation for all the roles that we play to get us towards a better place. And I'm seeing now that, you know, it's either, you know, this like this cancel culture, you're either down this way or you're not in the game at all, right? Like you're either out here fighting loudly and boldly and, and or if you're inside, um, you're not, you're not playing the same game that we're playing. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of the different roles that we do play? Uh, and how we might partner differently, because I think you were touching on that with um, nonprofits and philanthropy, really, truly partnering and having honest conversations that leads towards progress. But I'd like to add other stakeholders, including the staff and the board that we've talked about, but also community, and that there is a role for, for folks to be at the table. But the way that we enter into the work is very, very different. Yeah, I would say we, we all have roles to play. We, you know, we have, we have, we need to have the inside game, the outside game. We, we need to have community support. We need to mobilize community support, all these different strategies. The strategies themselves have to be very different. We got to think about like the MLK versus Malcolm X, you know, they were in communication, you know, like they were, we, we have to start thinking along those lines. 
Um, and you're right. There has been a lot of sort of attacking one another for not being pure enough or for not being. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to really find all the balance with this because yes, there is definitely, we, we do need to um, give one another the leeway because we're all going to make mistakes. We're not going to all be, have the same concepts and terminologies and experiences. And I do see a lot of people of color attacking one another or having lots of fights. And at the same time, I do feel like this is how the system perpetuates itself because it creates situations for us to constantly be at, at, at tension with one another. And we have to really recognize that um, and, and figure out how to like cut through all the BS. And unfortunately, there's so much BS. And the BS is all, it's causing us to, it makes it much harder for us to work together. You know, I, I think about, again, nonprofit and philanthropy, right? And, and I, I think about how there's just so much, so many barriers that we have. As I think the last time you and I talked, I, I don't believe we should have grant applications anymore. You know, we should target the communities that are most in need of help and provide them with funding directly. Um, so more money can be going to black and indigenous communities of color, people with disabilities, et cetera, without all of the hoops that they have to jump through when they are the least likely to be able to jump through these hoops because you know, that's why they need the funding in the first place because of, of the injustice they're facing, right? So if we, if we can cut through that BS, so that's one BS that we got to cut through. The other BS is, again, this sort of centering of, of money as the, the focus of power which allows foundations to set strategies. Um, and I, I'm just thinking, why? Why are foundations setting strategies, right? Should not the people who are most experiencing injustice are closest in proximity to it, they should be the ones setting the strategies that most, all of us, nonprofits and foundations should be listening to and following. So until we cut through that BS, why would community members want to play their role in supporting us when they have been dismissed repeatedly when they bring up stuff, when they say things like, hey, let's defund the police or whatever. And we're like, you know what? We don't really believe in that strategy, even though the people who are most harmed are the ones who are proposing it. So I think kind of moving us towards like, do we actually trust the people most affected by systemic injustice to have the best likelihood of having the most effective solutions? Because if we do, then we have to listen to them, even if we don't agree to it. Because otherwise, why would they play their role in, in pushing forward? Why? you know, if some roles are respected and other roles are not. Yeah, that's, you know, so one of the um, the questions that came from that is, and, you know, I'm thinking that our communities are not a monolith. And so we have um, people within community that, for instance, sit on different sides of even the issue around policing. And so as we're advising our nonprofits and philanthropy to get closer to the community, you know, how, who do you listen to? when you're in community and there's obviously the whole continuum of, of opinions and perspectives that exist within even our own institution. So how do you get proximate? And then if you are proximate, how do you know who to listen to? Yeah, thanks Shonda, I, I, I agree. We are definitely not a monolith. And we also deserve the right to disagree and to have controversial opinions, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's, I, I feel like we haven't been given that. We always expect to get along. We always expect people of color and people within the same marginalized communities to get along because otherwise we, we think of them as disorganized and whatever. So I appreciate the calling out that, no, we're not a monolith. We deserve our own opinions and diversity, um, et cetera. So we should do that. 
And so, yeah, it is harder. But I think I've, I've been feeling that this has been used as an excuse for a lot of philanthropy to not support. And I've seen this happen over and over again, where uh, a funder will actually literally call me up and say, Vu, you know, you've been, I noticed there's some tension between this, your community and another community and et cetera. Well, the, what we're going to do is just, we're not going to fund either one of you until y'all get along. Well, yes, I'm sure removing funding from communities that are in desperate need of resources will help them, encourage them to get along. That is not what happens. It's the complete opposite of that. So philanthropy has to support all the different diverse perspectives and, and do the more challenging work of, of, of being there in the community so that you can actually figure out because I think there are still patterns and trends. Yes, I, I mean, I talk to people, people of color who are still like believing in all lives matter, right? Who don't believe in the Black Lives Matter movement. And we've seen this in the past um, more in the past where a lot of people uh, in my community, Asian communities, who are just like, I don't understand this Black Lives Matter thing. And there's a lot of anti-blackness in Asian API communities. Let's, let's be honest with, with ourselves, right? So we, but Wait, you, we have to do the hard to work. Are you trying to tell me that, that all POICs don't get along? <laughs> we, we don't get along because the system prevents us from getting along and we perpetuate these systems. But I think uh, my point is, that we have to do the hard work of being in communities that we can start figuring out what is the, the majority or what is the pattern and trends. Because the reality is, like, I think, like, to, you know, like, Black people uh, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement are twice more likely to support uh, defunding the police than, than white folks. And that is something that is significant. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, just in terms of, like, so getting proximate um, to communities and getting out and listening. And then in our last conversation, we talked about poverty tourism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is there, you know, just just for the listeners that might be thinking, okay, I want to get more more proximate. I want to get closer to the issue. I want to talk to people that are impacted. Um, can you help us distinguish between what is being called poverty tourism and getting more proximate? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, can, I have my opinions, but again, this is something that we all have to explore, right? I, a lot of it is like the intentions that you're coming with and how often you're there. <laughs> Even just how often you're there. You know, we have people who are there on the ground all the time who are there. They know the folks, they, they, they frequent the establishments, they, they go to the, the, the community groups, the community centers, et cetera. And then there are the folks who only come when they need something, right? When they want to advance some sort of agenda. There's a clear difference. One takes a lot more time than the other. And so that's, that's another thing. Are you coming down with an agenda? Uh, are you only going there for one time just to make an appearance so that you can be seen? Or are you actually there on the ground with people? So I think that's, that's, a, that's the major difference between poverty tourism and not. And also... Are you providing resources and support to the organization? Are you centering yourself? I, I think an example is uh, like a, a donor told me that he was delivering some PPEs, uh, personal protective equipment to uh, an organization. And the organization's like, um, would you like a, a picture that you can put on social media of you deliver, giving us the P, PPE? And he's like, what, why? And the person's like, well, you know, everyone's been wanting to be seen as like helping us. And I'm like, okay, that is an example of poverty tourism. When you come down there to get a, a photo op of you helping the community, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there are things we can, we can talk about, but yeah. 
explored the um, this notion of no application that we talked about last time. Um, yeah, that's come up again. And if we were to do, and I guess I'll talk about the no application, and then what do we do with final reports? Like, should we even require final reports? And so, you know, how do how would we again? I think we talked about it the first time, but it came back up. Is this notion of not having a grant application? Why? How? How do we do that? Or why do well, we do that? Yeah, or what, like, what would be the vantage point of doing that? And if we didn't do that, especially, I guess I'll add my own, my own flavor to this question. And what in my read in is that if you're working in an institution that already shows biases or already are not funding equitably in communities of color or to black led or folks of color led organizations, how could they move to a no grant application without continuing or furthering that that just that practice? I would say that they would further sort of the inequity by having grant applications because grant applications have been weaponized as a, a way to to force communities to jump through hoops, and they and they're rooted in white professionalism, which is like, are you writing in a certain way? Are you communicating your numbers in a particular way that? our white board of trustees can understand or our white staff members can understand. It's not about you know, allowing communities to tell their stories in a different way. It is forcing communities to jump through these hoops, these very white hoops, so they can get funding. So they have been perpetuating inequity because the reality is that these catalytic grants of multi-million dollar catalytic grants are easier for, for people to get if they have the relationships you know, and so they're going to be going to, they have been going to white-led organizations. So yeah. then what happens is that these burdensome, tiny grant applications and, the, and the, the most burdensome grant applications are the small ones of five and 10 and $25,000. And those are the ones that communities of color have access to. And I, I, I got a glimpse of this when I was able to write a two-page concept paper and got a $1 million grant. Whereas my friend spent 30 hours writing uh, this 10 page, the 10 attachment, six page narrative with a logic model and for $5,000. And I remember, you know, she was crying because this is the second time that she got rejected for this $5,000 grant. And I called up the program officer and I said, why are you doing this? Why are you forcing so much work to be done for a $5,000 grant? And you know what the program officer told me? She said, well, you know, we want these, uh, the, the review community committee thought that and this is one of the first few grants that these small grassroots organizations are applying for. And we want them to give them a real grant writing experience. We want to help them increase their capacity for grant writing. That's bullshit. And it's patriarchal and it's awful. And it's pervasive across the entire sector. So the response to that is not having more of this being perpetuated, more grants being written. It is going to directly to saying what communities need the help is black, indigenous communities with disabilities, et cetera, and telling them, you know what, you don't need to jump through our hoops anymore because that's not equitable. We know you've been suffering from systemic injustice and you've been doing amazing work. Here's $5 million per year for the next several years. Please keep doing what you're doing. Like that's what we should be doing. We're talking about equity, but, but we don't. We have... We have the, that image of the kids on the boxes. We, you know, I really don't like that image yeah. Right? Yeah. of the difference between equality and equity. You know, we have like that short kid setting on two boxes. And, but that's not what happens. The short kid 
never gets those two boxes. The short kid has to apply for one-tenth of a box that the tall kid has been getting. That's not equity. No. When, um, so when I think about the hoops, so one, I just want to like give you a big old virtual hand clap because <laughs> I would say that when I, you know, when I led Pillsbury United Communities, you know, my most substantial gift that I was able to raise was very much a conversation like you and I are having now about the vision. They saw the, the strategic plan that I had led and writ written and um, they were in full support and wanted to support me as a leader. And it evolved into a conversation that was my most significant gift that I was able to to get and it felt like it was in true partnership versus you know the the points that you're raising uh, in terms of the hoops and so i bring that that experience into how i'm working to lead here at the foundation but i'm also working at a foundation and where um proving impact i think all of us are trying to figure out how to prove impact and um just because i moved over to this side of the work doesn't mean that that's not something i still have to substantiate can you talk about how um, impact reporting is either helping or not helping kind of the, the access that you're speaking of now? Well, let's talk about impacts first, because impacts and evaluation has, have been very white-centered practices. You know, it's like who, do, who gets to define what impact is or what effectiveness is. It's mainly white um, people or leaders from elite institutions, Ivy League, academic institutions, and so on, who have been out there defining what effectiveness is. And we have to really think about, well, does the community or the people who are most affected by systemic injustice, do they, do they define effectiveness the same way? And chances are, they don't. And so there's this sort of dissonance that are out there. And until we can get to understand and resolve that sort of dissonance, then I think we're measuring this, the wrong thing. We're not even measuring the same stuff together. So how do we even agree on what effectiveness is in the first place? So that's, that's one thing. And then I feel like there's just so much wrong with how we do evaluation. You know, it is very short-term focus. It is not like a 10-year sort of like, you know, let's give an organization 10 years to work through this because it's like, no, we give you one year to solve poverty and racism. And if you don't demonstrate some sort of progress or impact or whatever, then we're just going to remove funding. So in this constant cycle of, of, of this. So yeah, we have to, to think about how effective we are, but the framing around it, it's just all wrong. We have to think long-term longitudinal sort of successes here. And that's going to take decades. How do we address like homelessness in like two years? That's not how this works. Yeah. So ex foundations expecting to sort of short-term impact is ridiculous. Then there's like the dissonance, with what organizations are doing versus what they, and, and their impact. So like, remember arts organization feeling so frustrated because the foundations in our area were like, you, we can no longer accept that your creativity and critical thinking and stuff um, are, are actually, are, are your, or your kids being good people and they're happy. So not worth it. Those are not strong enough going to get jobs. And some of the arts organizations are like, why, why do we do this? Like that's that's ridiculous. Why are you expecting us to to measure that? That doesn't make any sense, you know. So what do we lift up as an, an effective outcome is something we have to dis, to to discuss as well. Yeah, and that, I mean that leads into final reports, and and I've thought a lot about that. Right, if you're using final reports or data to include or exclude, that's that's problematic. If I think, 
if we're using it to learn and to be in partnership with our grantees, that feels better. Um, but do you have an opinion about whether or not um, foundations should continue to use final reports? I'm assuming um, you want us to trash those too if you don't like applications. <laughs> <laughs> I would like, to, uh, we should have conversations. So an example of doing something differently is the Robert Sterling Clark Foundation. They just decided to have lunches with each grantee and, and talk about what the grantees learned and they recorded it and, and actually had a, an app that transcribes what the grantee says, right? And that's, that's the report. So I think that we can do this differently where it's not so punitive. It shouldn't, I don't know, we, we're all learning and we have to be encouraging of failure and transparency and what's working and what's not, right? But instead we have, we use it as some sort of accountability measure. Like did you screw up or did you embezzle? I mean, that's kind of basically what foundations uh, reports are about right now. It's just like, did you screw up? Did you say that you did what you're going to do instead of what did you learn? that could help us in, in the movement to end homelessness or whatever, right? We don't do that. We also become isolated. So I think that reporting should be like a collective effort where we can share with other people doing the work as well, not just between foundations and, and the grantees, but like who else is doing this work and what can they all, what can we all learn from one another? Yeah. So maybe a giant group lunch. <laughs> when the pandemic is over. Lunch. That's a lot of lunching. <laughs> <laughs> we do like food in the center. So. We do like food, but I get the point though. I get the point. You know, so you're doing some work with community-centric fundraising, CCF. Yeah. And someone asked the question about how did you land your fiscal sponsorship for CCF? And can you tell me a bit about how you um, established that chapter? Uh, yeah, uh, fiscal sponsorship, there, there are lots of organizations uh, out there that provide fiscal sponsorship. This is, a, this is a tool that we need to use more often in our sector. Because as much as we complain about 51C3s, having too many of them, we are also, there's a stigma against fiscal sponsorship. A lot of foundations won't fund someone who is fiscally uh, sponsored. And I think that's just terrible. So that's one thing, go seek out organizations that provide fiscal sponsorship and just, but at the same time, I, I think CCF is a movement, right? You don't have to become a 51C3 or even fiscally sponsored. It's just go and, and start doing, doing the, just trying stuff. And maybe it might lead to a 51C3 if it makes sense. But for us over here, I, I don't think it, it makes sense. We just want to do the work and, there's just so much legalities that come with being your own 51c3 organization or even. So I would say we need to just start doing things instead of just intellectualizing things more. As we get ready to wrap, Vu, um, you know, last time we talked about ending with civil, silver linings and something joyful and, you know, unicorns and stuff like that. And we didn't get there. And so, you know, we started on kind of this note on how heavy the work feels right now. And I'd love to just end on something that is bringing you um, joy or that you're hopeful about. Uh, thanks, Shonda. I would love to hear also what brings you joy as well. I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just constantly inspired by the people in, in our sector and who are able to have very thoughtful conversations and dialogue and who continue to, to do the work uh, despite everything. I, I, I'm just so grateful for everyone here and i know the work is really hard but i can't imagine doing anything else with my life 
right now or even or in the future. Although this nonprofit uh, sketch comedy show is something I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> getting more and more serious about because we need more, more humor in our world. So that's what I was working on until the pandemic hit. And now, you know, that has to be stopped, but I, I still want to work on that because I feel like our sector is full of hilarious people. There are amazing actors and artists and singers in our sector. And we're just so focused on doing the work here that I think in some ways we neglect our creative sides. Yeah. And maybe this is a chance for us to really reconnect with that and use creative storytelling to uplift many of uh, the, the messages we want to get out there about how to create a better, more inclusive world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I'm funny too. I can be funny. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> um, What's bringing so, you joy, Shonda? Yeah, I'm just like, I can be very funny. Um, so what, what's bringing me joy, you know, over the weekend, you know, I, um, at the foundation, we have a partnership with the Timberwolves and the Lynx. Yeah. And, you know, we've been thinking about how that unfolds and working through it. And we have just, I just have incredible respect for uh, Coach Saunders and Coach Reeves. And watching our athletes over the last little bit and the way in which they've chosen to use their platform, um, you know, just, you know, I'm on ESPN watching the leadership of the, NS, the NFL, watching the men that have been very vulnerable, that have been tearful, that have really come into leadership, showing who they are as people and what they're wrestling with has been really inspirational. Um, for me, I think, you know, as a mom of sons, having uh, these public profile uh, men cry on television and give permission and really um, own the heaviness of the time that we're in has been really inspirational. Aside from just the grief that they're experiencing, I think I'm seeing the breakthrough of what identifying with what we're experiencing can bring and watching how things are getting negotiated. Like, you know, I don't feel old, but certainly younger generations leadership that is bolder than than my generation and watching that has brought me great inspiration and then i've just doubled down i think last time you know we talked about and i said you know like you know like some days i just don't feel okay right and i'm just trying to acknowledge that uh more and more and 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 i'm being more deliberate about reaching out and so i've had some incredibly good days filled with friends and laughter and you know good walks good drinks good food um, that, you know, that feels like being in community of people that care deeply, but are able to, you know, set it down for a minute and encourage me to just get off of social media, you know, get away from the pain of the moment and just, just find places to be grateful and have gratitude has been incredibly rewarding during this time. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that, Shana. Going back to what we said in the beginning, we still need to find joy and and humor and i don't think that is and like distracting from like the seriousness of the situation uh i think i have to grasp with that too so maybe i'll i'll, I'll write funnier columns moving forward i don't know <laughs> interspersed between the very serious <laughs> pissed off ones yeah i think you know do what you need to do in the moment we are you know we we have um an expectation of your humor but we certainly appreciate um you know, the, the intellectual aspect of what you bring to this work. We look to you for your, for your leadership, 
for you contextualizing the things that we're feeling um, day to day. So I thank you for your leadership, for being on this podcast with me today. And uh, I look forward to having you in Minneapolis as soon as we can move around more freely. I am looking forward to that too, Shonda, that there's some really great vegan restaurants in Minneapolis that that we can go to. (laughs) Shout out to the vegans. (laughs) Anyway, enjoy your day. Thank you, Shonda. That's Boule and Shonda Smith-Baker. Sign up to receive updates at conversationswithshonda.org and follow Vule on Twitter at NonprofitAF and Shonda at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pakkinitz from the Minneapolis Foundation wishing you all the best and thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.